This is Inside the Box. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor Barrett, and I am here with my good friend and partner in this, David Blakesley. David, how are you doing today? I'm very happy to be talking with you again, Trevor. It's a new year. This is my first podcast of the uh, 2021 uh, season, and uh, actually the first one that we've done since uh, you and I were both on the Criterion Mm. cast year-end episode, but uh, even more importantly, this is episode four. It feels like we've got a real program going now, right, you know? Right, right. <laughs> yep, it starts to starts to, to roll off and feel like it might not just uh, uh, scuttle after a couple of, uh, <laughs> of yeah. bursts. So, yeah, I'm feeling the same way and really, really enjoying these episodes, these talks, and just being able to delve into these beautiful box sets that Criterion has released uh, for folks that are coming to us uh, fresh. Uh, that's what Inside the Box is. It is about Criterion, the Criterion Collection's uh, box sets. And, and we, we've defined that term so far uh, pretty literally. You know, we've done the, the ones where you can go to the store and you see that they are in a box that's bigger than a DVD case. Uh, you know, we focused on uh, several of these sets that have three or four films. Actually, have we done any that have four films? I think, I think they've all, all been had, trilogies of some sort. They've or all another, been yeah. trilogies, so maybe we should have called it inside the trilogy box. Or but something we've got done. plans, so we'll, oh, there we'll, we go. we'll grow it, and uh, <laughs> you know, we don't want to box ourselves in. Oh, no pun intended. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we're only inside the box in one way. Every other way, we're going to try to think outside too. Um, so you know, we we, we are looking um, at other other sets, and some of these might even be ones that do come in a case. You know, we've we've talked about the Samurai trilogy, for example, as one that we might do someday. Even though, if you went to the store, it's inside of a of a of a case, but still still a collection of of several films. And so, you know, we'll, we'll get to as many of these as as we can, and we'll we'll we will follow our whims and uh, continue to have these these uh, fun conversations. We hope that you will join us. Let us know your thoughts uh, today. We are here to discuss, in the, the beginning of January, uh, some films that make me want to travel, at, well, and here in the middle of a pandemic as well, make me want to travel <laughs> and go to some warm docks on the Mediterranean. Uh, we are going to be discussing uh, Marcel Pagnol's uh, The Marseille Trilogy, uh, some films that um, I had not seen uh, until Criterion released these a couple of years ago now, maybe even... David, did these come out in 2017? That's almost four years ago now that these films came out. Uh, time flies, but uh, but that's when I first uh, discovered these films. I'd never seen them before and fell in love. They were among my favorites of that year. Uh, when the year-end episode came around, I remember having this set on there and the Before trilogy and realizing only in the moment, man, I must really like these multi-year sagas about individuals and their, their love lives and strifes and things <laughs> like that. So <laughs> There is a theme so here, here, for sure. Here yeah. we are. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I had not seen these films during you know, that year of 2017, or they clearly would have been in just very strong consideration as my favorite releases. These are fantastic films. You know, and you and I, Trevor, have talked about 
1930s French cinema at some length. We've covered the Duvivier sets, the Sacha Guitry, uh, in the Eclipse Viewer podcast that we did. And uh, we talked about uh, Renoir's A Day in the Country. And I think just kind of just in our general conversations that we've had over the years, um, Mm -hmm. 1930s French cinema is a sweet spot for both of us. And yet these films feel so foundational and so kind of fundamental to that whole sort of chapter in in the history of film it's like why well, i almost have to start over and reassess you know what french cinema is all about they just feel like this is kind of a bedrock you know kind of like rene claire who is a bit of a predecessor of Pagnol as far as cinema is concerned um you know he's kind of a godfather of french cinema uh but boy you know for me to you know exclaim my my appreciation for french films of that era and to have had no knowledge of marcel pagnol and the marseille trilogy <laughs> up until that time it's like well i feel almost like a bit of an imposter although you know these again fall right into place and just you know even enhance my um appreciation and celebration of this very special era in in movie making yeah i think that's a good point because you're right and i think we all of us. I can't imagine anybody out there who uh, doesn't have things like that happen to them. Like, oh, I thought I knew what I was talking about. Here's, <laughs> here's all this stuff, yeah. and uh, and you know, it's one of the delights of uh, of living in the age we are, where things do become available and we're able to find them and discover them when they do. Um, but yes, I had the same thought. Uh, you know, this the, the the first film in this trilogy is Marius. And it's from 1931, and so it is. It it precedes many of the films that we have talked about as we've discussed what poetic realism is in that movement, and as we've discussed kind of the trends. And it fills apart with those, and and yet you know I, I never was watching these and thought, oh that's totally the uh, a Duvivier moment or Duvivier film or a Sasha Gutry film. You can see a lot of that stuff, maybe. Um, maybe playing with each other but these these do feel feel special and unique as you go on and i guess just to introduce them so there's marius which is 1931 funny which is 1932 and then a, uh, a few years later in 1936 the final film of the trilogy cesar and i don't think that we are necessarily going to continue to pronounce those in our in well me in in a, in a kind of a mock uh, yeah. French accent, um, you know we can just say Marius, Fanny, and Caesar or something like that. However, however, it we'll slide it moment, around but. a little bit. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, these these definitely hit on many of the things that we've talked about in the past when we're talking about French cinema, and yet there's a difference and maybe we'll get to that mm-hmm. um as especially as we get to the 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 very very end and so listeners maybe a, a fair warning here we aren't really sensitive to spoilers on this show you know we don't want to spoil these movies for for anybody necessarily but we also want to be able to discuss um them you know so fair warning uh and and David, I don't know. What are your thoughts on this one? Should we start um, general to maybe get people's appetites whetted if they've never, yeah, never I mean, seen these, and then 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 give a warning that we're going to just now be sure. open to talk about anything. For 
on the assumption that there may be some listeners who want to just check into the first portion of a show and say, mm-hmm. what did David and Trevor think about the box? Uh, well, we'll tell you it's great. <laughs> but uh, but we can fantastic. also give a bit of an overview. And then maybe yeah. at some point we can get into plot developments because these are absolutely plot-driven films with uh, suspense and what's going to happen next and how will so-and-so react to this new revelation you know so so there are some surprises that uh i certainly in my first go through um i would not have wanted to been spoiled because there's genuine tension like how is this going to break which way are they going to go because each character it seems have very fundamental decisions to make uh kind of one of those you know kind of crossroads moments that we we all face in life uh, you can go this way or you can go that way but you can't go both so you got to decide and there's there's plenty of that here and that's that that's kind of that uh, you know the echoes of, of of real life that i think are a big attraction to these films because whether we decided to go this way or that uh, we can certainly relate to the dilemmas that these characters face in many many ways uh, and and each of them go through their changes and that's one of the the real fantastic accomplishments of these you know again early sound films this is kind of uh there's there's technical innovation and there's kind of new dimensions in in cinema being explored here um which makes these films kind of important from a a sort of a development of the art perspective but they're just great stories that that uh are both timeless because they relate to our conditions our lives our circumstances but are also very reminiscent of a very specific time and place, which you've already alluded to, Trevor. It's like, I want to go there. I sure would love to <laughs> step into this world and just kind of look around and, and, and play my part in it, you know? Uh, so, yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's, I think we can maybe just give a, a bit of a, of a glimpse of you know, the box as a whole, and, and maybe towards the end, after we've discussed the films, we can get into some of the specific supplements. But, uh, you know, it's a really handsome volume. You know, uh, the cover itself is poster-worthy, uh, even though I don't think the Criterion.com website sells posters anymore. I, I just noticed that recently, that uh, I cannot find any posters for sale on the website anywhere. But there was a time where you could have put a nice big glossy, you know, larger, you know, uh, scale print of, of that cover, which features kind of our, our main three, uh, Marius with his back to the camera in the film. This is lifted specifically from a very pivotal scene. Uh, funny over to his left as we're looking at it and then they kind of drop Cesar into the uh, picture as well but it's it's a shot looking across the uh, the mouth of the Rhone River and the old port of Marseille it really just puts you in that place and and really I'd say in that mood you know there's a ships ships in the background the buildings on the other side of the banks and just uh, this you know, like, yeah, this this sunny Mediterranean cosmopolitan uh, hub of world trade and uh, and yet very salt of the earth common people who live there and, and you know, live and love and grow and, and pass on and, uh, you know, inherit traditions from previous generations and struggle to figure out what of their heritage is worth passing on and what perhaps needs to change with the ever-flowing currents of time so yeah there's there's the particularity of these individuals and the growth they experience throughout these uh this this expansive story and there's just this sense of a a large world in which they're just little figures moving around trying to make the best sense of it that they can Mm -hmm. and uh how does that not relate to the lives we all live you know well and how 
how their their lives in in many ways would be forgotten right now. Oh yeah, if they weren't captured in this film. Now I know they're fictional characters. That's not what I mean. But these are not these are not the story people who who would be remembered throughout history. These dilemmas that they go through are are so particular that sometimes they don't even know each other's uh, hearts and struggles. You know, they're hiding them from each other, and so the. You know, they're, they're they're in this community. We've got our three central characters, but then we have their friends and neighbors. And as the films go on, you realize that each of them have had their stories and their pains, but they don't really come out. They don't come out to the forefront. And that's the kind of people that we're dealing with here. Their lives and and how they can how they can come together to to enjoy uh, the day-to-day and survive. And, and it, this is not a, a downer set as far as, um, you know, when we get into some other 1930s films where there's a, 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 or of, um, a poetic realism where, you know, there's going to be massive uh, suicides and class struggles that, you know, people are going to starve to death. This is uh, a little bit more um, uh, just get these people through the day, help them find their, their, uh, their change so that they can, they can eat their meals and go on. And, um, it, it creates this, this really lovely, lovely community and a sense of, of scale and scope. That's, that's very intimate. Um, at the same time as taking about two decades, a little over two decades, I think is how long these, uh, the time we get to know these characters over, you know, the first two films, um, over a, a few years, and then the this the last one taking place a couple of decades after that, um, just just wonderful things, and um, maybe a good way to to start without um, uh, well, actually, be- before I get into there, uh, are there any other general things that you want to know about the box for people who might be trying to test out test the water a little bit and decide whether they even want to purchase these um, mm. this set or just watch them on films or on uh, on the Criterion Channel? So, so they are for sure available on the channel. I, I you know, I should have they checked are. them. Okay, mm-hmm. so so that's that's kind of and and is it with the supplements as well? Yep. Yep. In fact, that's one way that I was able to get through a few uh, supplements again uh, was, you know, the English language ones, being able to just listen to them while I was uh, commuting over the week. And I'd seen them before, uh, but, uh, you know, just they are available there uh, and and, in good in good quality. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is this is definitely a box that I would um, I would want again because of just the the beauty of it the the cover the cover is by Manuel Fior and i it it is it's a, it's a beautiful cover and i think becomes even more meaningful as as you get to know these characters i mean you, you look at that and look at how funny is looking toward marius who is looking out toward the sea and how much meaning there is in in that mm-hmm. uh, little mm-hmm. shot there. Um, the 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 style is very reminiscent of you know old old French style. Uh, I love the colors. As you open up the box, you've got a really nice booklet with a lot of stills and and uh, various shots inside of it about the the trilogy. <laughs> On the cover is another character that we come to to know and 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 uh, love. Um, uh, Panisse, Honoré Panisse. Uh, and um, and then we get the colors of the individual boxes that really do focus on Marius, Fanny, and Cesar, that are that are very nice as well. So this is one of my favorite sets as far as 
just being able to pull it out and admire the uh, the artwork and the production of of the set itself. It's it's one that I think people who come over um, often look at and say, "Now that looks like a set of films I would like to watch." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it it's it's compelling. It it it's got a sense of uh, of promise to these uh, to the to the cover. Yeah, I would agree. I think the aesthetics of the whole set are are gorgeous. I mean, and and the booklet itself, I know you can probably jump on the website and read the words, but there is there's just a real uh, you know, beauty to to this volume. I'm kind of just flipping through it right now, you know, you get the cast, you get nice little portraits of the the prominent characters. I do appreciate that they give Panisse the cover because he really is a very pivotal character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it was a quadrilogy, maybe they could have done a film of what happened to Panisse and Fanny in the interim years <laughs> between those, yeah, uh-huh. between the end of Fanny and the beginning of Cesar. But uh yeah, I Obviously, I'll just say, you know, if you're if you're a collector of any sort or if you just like having, you know, top quality access to some of the very best films that Criterion has to offer, I think the set ranks right up there. I think these are, you know, as I've already said, in terms of their historic importance and, and the aesthetic beauty of the image, uh, I, I definitely remember uh, watching with my wife, Julie, just a you know, couple weeks ago when we first put in uh, Marius, the first Blu-ray. And she says, was this made in the, like the 50s or something? <laughs> it's like, no, this is from 1931. <laughs> but the image, cl- yeah, the image clarity is is just so sharp and so, uh, you know, and the restoration is is very important. And that and that's one of the, you know, essential aspects here. Because these films, you know, for those maybe a little bit better informed about French cinema than I was, you know, going into it, uh, the, you know, these films have clearly been known for a long time. And, and I think to the... French movie-going populace. In fact, there's a nice supplement on the on the uh, in the set uh, where they're interviewing just ordinary non-cinephile people, people who maybe even haven't seen the movie in decades, but they still remember key scenes, and and this is part of their kind of cultural fabric. And these films really are very very beloved, very renowned, um, just part of the, you know, the discourse, you know, like we think about It's a Wonderful Life or The Wizard of Oz or or films of that sort. They're kind of classic oldies. You don't have to be particularly into film to know those movies and to have them sort of in your in your system, in your bloodstream. I think for the, you know, for the French population, at least of a certain era, these films function in that same way. Uh, Marseille itself, the city is like the sort of the second metropolis of, of France. It's uh, it's a, it's a very distinct city from Paris and, and, and uh, Lyon being sort of the third major city. There's some, there's some play with that as far <laughs> as uh, where things rank and, and what's the real, France and and you know where is life best lived and all of that so so you know even within French culture you know there's a kind of a, a claim being made here about uh, about life in Marseille and so uh, that sense of place is also really good so yeah I, I I would give this box set about as high of a recommendation for any of its peers as far as you know a, a, a three film set with nice packaging um you know i know we talked quite glowingly about the carl zeman set really all of the sets that we've talked about so far are top shelf and that's one of the reasons yeah. that we we've chosen <laughs> them we, we were starting with the very best as we get this program rolling um but i, I don't see any reason um other than maybe 
financial straits where you've got to sort of be a little bit more frugal than maybe you and I are um, to say, yeah, this this would be one of the highest recommendations I would make if you like this type of film. You know, if you don't really dig mm -hmm. this era of movie making or you don't think you're going to rewatch it, you know, then maybe there's other uh, bargains out there for you to consider. But uh, to me, this is almost as good as it gets for this type of uh, a box set. Yep, I agree. But of course, if if you don't know if you want to get it, uh, again, you know, the Criterion Channel is a beautiful thing. And so I, I just recommend, I, I recommend dipping your toe into the water of Marius and seeing where it takes you because that's, that's what I did uh, back when I first got the set and I got it for a review. So, I, you know, I hadn't read it, what anyone else was thinking about the set or, and I, I really did come to the films pretty ignorant. Um, and I, I remember getting the set and thinking, oh, let's just see what it looks like. I'm going to pop in the first one here. And I think it's like 45 minutes later and we're still in the same day, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And I am, uh, and it doesn't feel like 45 minutes have gone by. I just had this sense of of being completely drawn into to this morning in Marseille with these various characters, and I didn't know which ones were going to become important. Uh, clearly, you know, uh, Marius and, and Cesar and Fanny, um, but the, the, all of the side characters, I didn't know who they were, whether they would come back into play, but I was so, uh, you know, enthralled by their conversations and by the sense of warm camaraderie and competition and uh, that just all of this very de a delicate balance that um, Pagnol, and it uh, should also be noted, he, he only directed the very last film here. He worked with a couple of other directors uh, for Marius and Fanny, um, and Marius was uh, directed by our, our, our good friend, um, you know, someone that, that we, we know from, from many other many other films. Uh, uh, Monsieur Alexander Korda, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Hungarian-born director, will become uh, very well known in the in the 30s, and you know, this is this is an early an early film for him as well. Uh, but uh, his his uh, the way that he gets us into those characters' lives is just perfect. And I'd I'd be you know I'd very much recommend that people just just wanting to to get and get a sense of this. Take that little stroll down the Marseille dock, and and see if you're not pulled into the lives of these characters. Um, but uh, but David, maybe do you, do you want to give us a little bit of a of a of an overview of not I don't think just Marius, uh, but maybe how then it, without getting into specifics how it how it expands into the other two films, and then sure. maybe we can say okay now it's time for us to not be so sensitive about spoilers. Yeah, that sounds like a good good angle. So let's go ahead and get into it. So yeah, Marius, Fanny, and Cesar. So the the three films in the trilogy, you know, relate to the three central characters. Marius is the son of Cesar. Uh, Cesar being a uh, kind of a, a long term uh, inhabitant of this you know old port uh, neighborhood. He owns a bar, uh, Bar de la Marine, and uh, 
Marius as his son. Uh, Marius is around 20, maybe in his early 20s. And, uh, you know, they're basically just working for a living, uh, making ends meet. Uh, one of those, you know, kind of proverbial shops where the owner lives in an apartment right upstairs from the business that he runs downstairs. And it's a bar. So, you know, you know, things that happen in bars happen right there. Uh, you might have a little bit of a rough crowd. You know, you're dealing with sailors and people just passing through looking for a drink. Um, but it's also, it's also just a neighborhood gathering place. There's a, there's a group of regulars that, that live around there, and that's where they go for their refreshments and just to hang out and just to unload a little bit. Um, Marius, uh, having grown up under his father's tutelage is, uh, you know, he's, he's basically set as the, as long as he wants to accept that this is his way of life and this is the business that he will someday inherit. Uh, Cesar also is a widower. His, his wife has passed away at some point. I, I think it's been a while. I don't have a, an exact sense of how long he's been alone. Um, but, uh, it's basically a father and son operation. Uh, Marius being the only child of that relationship. Fanny is a young woman who works just outside the front of the bar. Uh, she sells shellfish uh, down by the seashore. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, she she is the daughter of Honorine, who is the kind of a fishmonger. And so another small business happening right there. And of course, uh, Marseille. It's it's a oh, you know, it's, it's it's a port right on the Mediterranean Sea. So they have fresh catches of the day. And this is old school, you know bringing in the fish in wicker baskets and dropping them on the sidewalk or into other baskets and, and just moving them out as fast as they can. And Fanny and Marius have basically grown up as childhood friends. One of those relationships where you're so familiar and you've known each other for so long that the idea of a romance developing is kind of seems comical on the surface, but and yet there's also a deep uh, bond and familiarity and affection and there's also just that whole coming of age thing where all of a sudden the you know the 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 kid next door all of a sudden becomes a lot more attractive as you know they kind of develop and mature and yet Marius has this kind of turmoil boiling within him about wanting to step out of the routine and the inheritance if you will that's been cast for him humble as it may be uh, he feels the call of the sea. He sees these boats sailing out every day for exciting, exotic parts of the world that he can only dream of. And yet he's a capable, you know, virile, handsome young man. He, he can lift that barge and tote that bale as good as anybody. And mm -hmm. he's just waiting for his moment to think, boy, could I really do that? And yet he feels this, you know, the the comforts of home and the domestic life and the familiarity there there's certainly an attraction there and it's not really until fanny is becomes kind of the object of affection of honore panice uh, the sailmaker whose business is just down the block, and uh, he's uh, about 30 years older than Fanny. Uh, he also is a widower. Uh, he never had any child, and, uh, and now he sort of sees this attractive, eligible young woman. He's a man of means, even though he's not, you know, flaunting his wealth, and he's certainly not, you know, dressed in any kind of exotic, uh, aristocratic uh, couture or anything like that. But you know, he's he's 
definitely the most financially secure of this little bunch that we've met in those early goings. And he feels he does have something to offer Fanny and, by extension, her mother and her aunt, who also kind of lives with them. And that's a nice little you know, comic relationship, a little household there that brings some color into it. Uh, and so there's a little bit of a rivalry that develops between Marius and Panisse. And Fanny, you know, as a young woman, kind of recognizing that she's drawn the attraction of two competing men, she sort of digs that. <laughs> she has a little bit of fun with it to see uh, who's going to fight a little bit harder to win her charms. Uh, beyond that, there's uh, Escar Fatigue. Uh, um, uh, the the uh, he's a captain of a ferry who just <laughs> his his sailing career is basically going from one side of the the mouth of the Rhone to the other and and that's good enough for him you know he can say I'm the captain I'm the skipper I'm the commander of this vessel and yet he only has you know a relatively few meters to cross to say I've had another successful voyage <laughs> uh, there's Monsieur Brune he's the Lyonnais the man mm-hmm. from Lyon who's a little bit of an outsider here he's not a Parisian he's not a Marseille he's just kind of a man caught in the middle but this is kind of where he hangs out now and and so he he sort of plays a bit of a straight man uh, a comic foil for uh various wisecracks uh but you know he he gets his little moments in there as well and i think and again there's there's broader than that there's side characters there's the stoker and and just a, a lot of nice colorful little oddballs who all contribute their own share of uh, warmth and humor and absurdity from time to time. But it really is this this central conflict. What's Marius going to do? Is he going to, you know, become, you know, a good son? And and again, maybe the other thing is the, the father-son relationship between Cesar and his son Marius. Cesar, uh, played by Raimu, who gets top billing in each of these films, um, is one of these, he's kind of like a Harry Bauer type of character. In fact, I think Harry Bauer played the Cesar character in some of the stage productions. And Harry Bauer, if you if you don't recognize the name, is he was uh, Jean Valjean in uh, Les Miserables. He's one of these big, you know, mountain of a man type of guys. And and Raimu is is kind of like that. He's you know, you know very girthy, uh, but a commanding presence. Uh, you know, whenever he's on screen, you just basically got to check him out because he in, dominates. You know, and and in another way, kind yeah. of like Michel Simone as well. Oh, very yeah. very yeah. speedy dialogue delivery. Just really just pulls you right in. Yeah. Yeah, and and he can go from this very kind of somber, reflective moment to this kind of really again comical rage and and you know boisterous you know volume argumentative. Uh, but also, you know, again, cutting right to the quick with uh, his ability to be emotional and poignant and sensitive. But, you know, he's the stereotypical guy who has a hard time showing that more tender side of his emotions. And so, you know, Marius just finds himself receiving basically criticism and confrontation and, and even a little bit of, you know, mockery and, and uh, dismission, you know, dismissiveness from his dad uh, when you know, something comes up in the presence of, of the larger company. And so you can sort of sense where Marius has a legitimate beef. Like, I just got to get out of this place. I just got to do something different because, you know, while there's security and stability and familiarity, uh, is that really all I want from life? And again, it's just one of those fundamental questions. You know, a lot of us have that decision to make at different points. Do we stay with the tried and true, or do we roll the dice and see what happens? And that's that's just a huge, uh, dramatic kind of uh, 
dynamic that 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 unfolds over the course of this marvelous story. Yeah, and, and just a sense again of the scale. So the first movie takes place a lot of it in in kind of a twenty four hour period, but then we do skip ahead a month to kind of see how things are shaking out and what happens in the dramatic movement. The next one takes place a couple of years later. And then the last one, like I said, about 20 years after that. So you really get to follow these characters uh, and see some of the consequences of their decisions and the way that they affect one another, which isn't just a, a plot thing, you know, as far as, oh, where did it take them? But also about their relationships and who they become for one another. And, and you know, after times of, of separation, whether they even feel like they can come together again. And so they're just, you know, again, just a wonderful sense of, of really getting in and, and following a few characters uh, around in, in, in all of this. But, but the first one does just let us get to know these three characters in particular so well in that first 30 minutes. Um, I remember what, one thing that really stands out to me is the relationship between uh, Cesar and Marius when they're arguing, you know, uh, Cesar is about to leave uh, the store and wants Marius to, to kind of uh, keep keep going and, uh, you know, keep everything um, working fine that, that morning. And Marius is maybe a little bit uh, teasing, saying, you know, saying the wrong things, but also might really not be paying that much attention. And they're, they get at each other's throats. I mean, they're yelling at each other. And then you see Marius start to kind of laugh at his father. And there's a bunch of warmth there. And you see his father start to kind of acknowledge that as well. That had to have been so delicate to come off right. Mm -hmm. To make it so that they can argue and bicker. And part of that, you know, I'm not saying this is a healthy relationship, but part of that shows their comfort and their warmth toward one another that they that's part of who they are and how they can be and yet they can still show uh tenderness mm-hmm. and it really comes out in that first little bit and and it's not just their relationship those little delicate uh, touches i think come out in in most of the characters that we meet there at the beginning including panis um, who's sitting there talking with uh, some of the other some of the other men? You know, oh, he lost his wife uh, several months ago, but you know, he's he's maybe going to see if he can help out. Funny, it's a good deal for him, mm-hmm. um, but it's a good deal for her too. Maybe, and, and he he doesn't seem to to be a leering lecherous person who's just lusty and trying to use his wealth. I mean, certainly someone could have cast it that way. But that's not how he's presented to us. He is presented to us as a as a good person, um, very generous, who is looking at, at the neighborhood and thinking, ah, this is this is a, a good deal for everyone." And it, and it still doesn't come off as a hundred percent transactional and cold. He would actually be very happy for her to end up with Marius. You know, you can kind of see at times. Mm-hmm. If that's really what she wants, but if not, he he recognizes he's a viable option and maybe a good practical option. Um, but it doesn't, it, you know. There, there there's a sense of competition there, and maybe some you know some bluster. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they all kind of get along and care for one another in a in a familial sense. 
Right. There's a community that's a genuine community that exists here. And it's like, okay, well, we could do it this way. We could do it that way. What's the best option for everybody? And, and there's an agreement. We'll, we'll live with the results, you know, uh, and yet things do get complicated and this may be jump off spoiler territory. So you want to maybe yeah, kind of make, make the break <laughs> right there. Yeah, yeah, here we go. So, okay. So, so basically what does happen is that, uh, you know, as, as Marius and Fenny sort of rediscover each other, you might say, uh, they do have intimate relations, um, not extensively. In fact, you may say they had one encounter, which boom, here it is, results in a pregnancy, uh, which is unknown to both Marius and Fanny uh, at the time that Marius makes the fateful decision, basically spurred on by Fanny, that his destiny is to go to sea. I mean, it's just burning within him. He uh, he he knows that you know there's there's two roads that he could travel. Uh, it's going to be one or the other, and he has an opportunity to to take a job as a ship hand. It's it's the entry level, bottom rung of the ladder. But uh, if you want it, here it is, son. Uh, step on board, and we've got a five year trip. I think was it to Australia that they're heading is supposedly. Mm-hmm. So you know it's basically this is a a big decision. This isn't just going down the coast, and you know you can always turn around and come back a couple months later. This is this is a big one, and you know five years is a long time in anybody's life. And when you're a sailor, um, there's a certain risk and danger, even or a fact that you might land somewhere between here in Australia and get another job on another ship and boom, now you're off to the Pacific or Cape Horn or or whatever, you know, you know, the the life of a sailor, uh, especially at the lower ends of the working class there is very unpredictable. Uh, But he casts his lot and and that's basically where Marius ends. Uh, So I don't necessarily mean we need to skip all the way through Marius's plot developments, but but that's basically uh, kind of the end of the one film and Fanny basically picks up seconds after Marius ends. I mean, they could be seen as part one and part two of a single Mm -hmm. contiguous story. They really are, actually. Um, But... You know, in the meantime, uh, Fanny plays a very important part because, you know, Marius, who's caught up in this conundrum, this this dilemma of, of what he should do, uh, it, it's Fanny who sort of tips the balance and, and says, you can do this. And she actually provides cover for Marius when Cesar is looking for him and, and uh, expecting him to come out and, and help out in a little bit of an emergency situation that develops right at the end of the first film. So, you know, it all comes to this very dramatic head, but uh, but you're right, Trevor. I mean, th- those establishing scenes at the beginning of Marius are, are so important because that's where we really, you know, get sold on, you know, this world and, and our, our own emotional investment. Uh, these these characters are portrayed with, with such brilliance and such clarity and such warmth and genuineness. You, you talked a little bit about the delicacy of being able to convey, you know, kind of a, a shouting anger at each other. And yet underneath that, even within that delivery of these kind of insulting lines, there's there's still got to be this genuine affection and bond that can <laughs> handle the pressure of being yelled at and, and even being threatened and slapped. There's a pride yeah. almost like, yeah. oh man, yeah. look at my old man go. He's yeah. so, yeah. you know... <laughs> <laughs> right, and 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 it's also kind of a a generational test on a generational competition. I mean, that definitely comes out between Panis and Marius. You've got 
you know, the old generation and the new generation, you know, the, you know, Panisse, the successful established businessman, probably in his, you know, fifties now. And, and Marius just entering into adulthood. And, uh, again, that's kind of an eternal <laughs> transitional struggle, isn't it? Between the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the old bucks and the young and, mm-hmm. uh, and who's going to call the shots. You know, the youth have the, the energy, the stamina, the, the kind of reckless boldness, uh, the older, they have the wisdom, they have the experience, uh, they've got the money. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you just, you sort of see how this, you know, this ongoing, uh, and never ending kind of struggle of transition plays out in this, again, this very tradition bound place. And that's another angle that's being, being explored here is the old ways, uh, of, of patriarchy and a child is, is just supposed to obey their parent no matter what. And, and, and even if they're in their twenties, I mean, one of Cesar's greatest lines, uh, uh, I wasn't, an, it was only when I was 32 that I got my last boot in the butt you know, from his father. So <laughs> if, if that's what the old man says, that's what you, what you got to do. And as is always the case, the younger generation says, yeah, that was okay for you, but why should we have to put up with that? Right. And so, um, you know, struggles that we think of in more contemporary times, you know, the, the, the millennials versus the boomers and all that kind of stuff. Well, these things have just been going on as long as humans have been born in generations as close together as they have. So, uh, I don't know. There's just, there's just so much to enjoy in, in watching these dynamics play out. Um, and, and I just have to give so much credit to the actors because they, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they had practiced these roles, I think hundreds of performances on stage, which is where where the first two films were born. Uh, the characters of Marius, Fanny, Caesar, and all that were all directed directly lifted from stage productions that took place in Marseille, which is where Marcel Pagnol was from. He he was born in that community, moved to Paris, and and kind of you know established himself as a playwright, and what kind of went back and forth, kind of played the two. Uh, poles against each other a little bit, but really brought that Marseillaise flavor to the P- Paris theatrical scene and was actually quite a hit. So they were very fortunate to be able to cast these actors who really had, you know, literally inhabited these roles quite a bit and knew all the beats, all the intonations, all the subtleties that, that made this performance come alive and draw audiences in. And we're, we're mm-hmm. so fortunate to have that captured on film. Oh, there's a few things I want to follow up on there. Um, the, I do want to get into some more of the character dynamics and the the conflicts as the film comes to its climax there at the end. But while we're talking about the stage um, aspect of this, that they were written for the stage and performed there, I've seen criticism that Marius in particular feels a little bit stage-bound. And I'm never 100% sure just what... I, I, I guess I do know what that means, but sometimes it feels more of a of just a, a a descriptor rather than a value judgment. And I think in this particular case, I never felt like I was just watching something where the camera was set up and the actors were running around the screen or uh, around a stage doing the exact same thing they would have done in a theater. I think this still crackles with um, with feeling lived in and the camera is still doing things for us to help us get to know the characters in ways that you know are unique to cinema. Um, but at the same time one of the I think one of the great accomplishments here is you're right they've done this so often that they know the beats but it doesn't feel like that's all they're doing here. 
it's become so natural that they're able to play this out as if it's spontaneous, as if the rage that uh, Caesar kind of erupts into, it's more of his nature. It isn't because that's the next thing his character is supposed to do here. Um, it's so well done. And, and for, for each of them, I think they do a fantastic job with that. I think Corda does a good job. Uh, you know, this is right at the, the verge of... of uh, of getting out of the studio for a lot of this stuff anyway. You know, there are some some lovely scenes. They're rarer in Marius than in the later ones, but that are on location and uh, that, that give a good taste there. Um, but there's one scene in particular that I think having the camera helping us is, is very well done. And that's one that, uh, oh, what's his name? Who gives us the introduction? Bertrand Tavernier. Uh, he he does the uh, introduction to the set. He kind of uh, is is credited with that, and he talks about the films, and he talks about Corda's direction and um, and Pagnol's probably there as well a little bit uh, in the card playing scene. Mm-hmm. And he says there have been a lot of directors over the years who have said, "Oh, they did that totally wrong because they never show the cards." You've got these characters, you know, playing this intense game here, and that some of them might be cheating. Um, and they never show the cards. And he goes, you know, for years I thought, oh yeah, that's true. That's 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 wrong. You know, you're supposed to, as a as a film director, you know, you want to get in some shots there and really let the audience in. Yeah, and then who's got the upper realized, hand in this game right. and all of that? Well, yeah, right, right. yeah. And then one day when he realized, well, that's stupid. Just because that's the technique doesn't mean you should always do it that way. And how much better is the scene because it's focused on none of that? but is on the characters and their faces and their games they're playing with each other. And we, because we don't know the cards, it's like we're there. You know, we're, we don't have any special privileged angle there other than we get to sit and watch them um, interact and how they're the focus, not this intense game of, of cards or whatever that means. You know, that would be way beyond, beside the point. Um, so so I love the, the direction. I love the... Um, the, the way these feel. I never felt like I was just watching, you, you know, Hamilton uh, uh, performance uh, recorded from multiple cameras. No, no. I mean, I, the outcome of that particular round of cards is completely immaterial. <laughs> it's all about the table talk and the kind of, you know, the, the, the humor. And, in, in, uh, you know, everybody understands that Cesar is trying to pull a fast one here, except his partner across the other side is <laughs> kind of densely not quite getting it. Who cares who, who wins this round? I mean, you know, there's a hundred rounds that have already been played and there's a hundred rounds more in your future. It's just, it's just this comical moment. And, and that particular uh, skit, if you will, almost feels like a set piece. And there's some really wonderful, beautiful little moments that could also just be isolated almost and made into short films themselves. They, they kind of have that uh, lingering reputation. You think about uh, playing bulls on the, on the, tracks of the railway car <laughs> bringing everything <laughs> to a stop or the uh you know the the big rock hidden in the bowl or uh you know waiting for some you know sucker to come along and give it a swift kick down the street to, except to stub their toe when they realize there's a you know 15 pound <laughs> chunk of of uh rock in there uh there's these are just beautiful little kind of light moments they're yeah little not, vignettes that yeah, exactly. fill they're out not, the story right they're they're not throwaways by any means they're they're part of the texture of this world and yet they're kind of extraneous to the plot they're just they're they're kind of for a, a almost like a variety show you've got a little bit of you know comic relief and then you've got the you know the 
the serious matters at hand uh, of what's going to happen with these characters as we've kind of come to yeah. know them and love them. Um, and yeah. I have seen criticism of, from people, even at the time, some of yeah, the sure. earlier, uh, I think they were from the, the U.S., if I'm remembering correctly, who were like, oh, they're a little bit long. They could easily be trimmed. And it's like, well, sure, yeah, they could if you really want to boil these down. If you just down, want to get from could. point A to point B mm-hmm. and, and figure out what happens. Well, but but it's the... That's not the what inha- these are about. Yeah. No, right. It's the inhabitation of this world. And it's, it's lingering. It's hanging out with these characters. That is, is so much of the fun. You know, another cinematic scene that I felt was very effectively done was the conflict between Panice and Marius when there's Fanny sitting sort of in the corner of the of the pub mm-hmm. there and 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 there's Which is Mar- funny and <laughs> and rough too. <laughs> it is so hilarious. I mean, I really was just laughing out loud through that entire scene as you see, you know, Panice is sort of making his move and Fanny's just sort of there soaking it in like, "Oh, wow, this rich, handsome businessman is coming after me." Like, "Wow, what a what a rush. What a what a sensation, right?" And he's trying to make sweet talk and and of course there's an awkwardness because he, everybody knows he's way older. He's more than twice her age. And yet he's going to give it his best shot. Uh, and there's Marius over there just kind of furiously wiping his glasses. <laughs> and he's got his little, you know, cigarette dangling there. And, and uh, he, he finds an excuse. I think I'm just going to come down and wipe down the table now, you know. And so, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Even... and the camera still is out there to show that he has a whole bar he could be tending to. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a oh, lot yeah. of space there. But he's over there in the corner with them. But it's just capturing the gesture the way Marius leans in with his legs sticking out behind him just to kind of make his point. And then Panice recognizes, oh, I'm being called out here, so I'm going to have to stand up and defend my honor. You've got them nose to nose with each other. You've got their feet sliding back and forth across the floors or each kind of, uh, you know, kind of, you know, drawing their positions and, and kind of getting ready to make their stand. And then there's that little crowd that gathers through the kind of the, 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 the I don't know what is that, not really beads, but this kind of this dangling, it's not really a door. It's just kind of like a little you know, curtain, if you will, that they can press your way through. And so you got spectators looking on, I mean, to me that felt like a very well executed cinematic scene. You know, if you were sitting in the theater watching it, you'd see all those same motions, but the way, you know, the camera focuses in on some of those anatomical details, you know, the feet, the faces, the, you know, the crowd gathering around, uh, the cuts back and forth, it's it's very well done. And, uh, you know, even though Corda is the director and Allegret is the director of the second film, you know, Pagnol was extremely involved. I mean, I think he did all of the set design, blocking, you know, all of the... All of the setup, uh, you know, Corda was brought in because he technically knew how to direct a sound movie, and Pagnol was brand new to this. But, you know, if they had done such a thing as co-director credits, I think Pagnol would have probably earned that on all three of these films. It was not until Cesar where he actually sits behind the camera and takes that credit for himself. Because, again, you know, he's coming over from the theater. This is you know, technically kind of a newer art form, and Pagnol is... is uh, both exerting a degree of control, but he's learning on the job. Uh, uh, and he, he does seem to be a bit of a Renaissance man himself, um, you know, kind of a legend in, in French uh, literary circles and, and really just a, a, a pretty significant cultural figure of his times, uh, which, again, I really did not have a lot of knowledge about that coming in. So that's another kind of argument in favor of this set and that you really get a sense of, Pagnol's significance through some of the extra features that are included on the discs. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm going to use this as a, as a jumping off point to start getting to the end of Marius. Um, and, and, and it's this. They get into their argument, Marius and Panis, in, at, there. And, of course, Panis's honor is, is, is at stake there. And I will never come to this bar again, you know. <laughs> I will never step foot in here. I would never do it to someone who has insulted him. You know he means it, but, of course, he's back the next day in the morning. <laughs> um, yeah, and, yeah. and it doesn't, you know, it's funny and it does, it, it's, it's contradictory. But that's character, too. That's who Panis is in this place. He has a, a relationship with Cesar, and he can tell Cesar what's happened, and Cesar can read between the lines and understand a little bit more of what Marius is thinking, you know, that this is kind of everyone dawning uh, in that uh, these two young people might love each other. And how beautiful is that for our little doc, you know, with all of this stuff going on in the world and all of our trying to get... Um, ahead in life and be practical our two children have fallen in love and what can we do to to help them and you know of course Panisse is still a little bit offended but you see that he recognizes a bit of this too you know he is going to keep coming to the bar it's his friends it's his it's his family um, in a way and then we get to the final kind of conflict when Marius does have an opportunity a month later, to go to sea. And Fanny doesn't want to keep him from this. She doesn't want him to resent her later on. And so she, she kind of lies to him. You know, she's pretty ruthless in a way in telling him, yeah, I might love you, but I'm marrying Panisse. Why wouldn't I marry Panisse? He's, he's wealthy. You know, he'll be able to take care of me. Um, you can't. And of course, she also tells him, no, I don't want you to resent me. You need to leave. So it's it's a whole development there of motives and uh, of lying in order to help someone that you love do something that, that they love. But there's also a sense that I, I really appreciate here that Fanny, uh, her, she's more complicated than that too. She Absolutely. is afraid yeah. that he will leave her. She is afraid that maybe marrying him might not be the best decision not just because of Marius, but because she doesn't want to have to be be um, to to labor under the the thought that she has not just taken something away from someone that she loves, but that maybe he won't love her, and she can't she can't stand that thought. Um, and maybe, though this doesn't necessarily you know uh, present itself. There might be a little part of her that's like, eh, what are we going to do with our lives? My mom is poorer than these guys, and they're poor. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. They, I mean, they're not they're not in, in poverty per se. They they do own their shops and such, <clears throat> but you know, Panice is wealthy, and he's right. older. She, she can be a be proper lady. She can mm-hmm. have, she can dress well, and and you know, kind of have uh, an opportunity to you know truly improve herself i mean there's really extraordinary complexity here and it's not you know drawn out it's not hit you over the head with some kind of um, political message or some kind of uh you know yeah. pedantic yeah. you know this is how ought, things ought to be you know Paniol is much more interested in in reflecting life's complexities than in prescribing a solution of how to reform society or something well, like that we- we talked about this very thing in a in a film that it, it has to be 
related in, in inspiration, you know, <laughs> uh, the umbrellas of Cherbourg, mm-hmm. where we we talked about what would you have me do, you know, when we when you and me and Scott uh, spoke about that film a, a while back on the on the Criterion Cast main episode of this is just life and there is no one there's no one sitting there in the, in the director's seat trying to judge or tell the characters this is what you should do now i'm going to punish my character for that no it's just a choice and and it led to these different roads and here are some of the benefits of that and here are some of the you know some of the detriments and it takes it seriously for the character's sake not for uh, a moral sake um, throughout these films yeah, yeah. So, again, just the ability to capture all of that and to, you know, really, really, you know, give the viewer a, a good case of the feels because you just recognize, you know, it's it's not a, it's not really a win lose. It's it's a a win win in one sense and a lose lose in the other because there's going to be some heartbreak. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some disappointment. Even Panice, you know, even Panice, if he were to, you know, lose this. Uh, you know, beautiful young wife that he contemplates and, and go through life never having a son, never being able to put the feels on his uh, on his <laughs> sign. Uh, there's there's a, a, a genuine sense of loss there. And, and, you know, getting into the, you know, next film when it's revealed after Marius has set sail and nobody knows exactly, you know, what's about to happen, we discover Fanny is pregnant with Marius's child from that one encounter, which has been discovered, I mean, uh, Honorine, uh, Fanny's mother, sort of captures them uh, when Marius had taken advantage, thinking that, uh, and, and Fanny herself was very complicit in this, that they had the place to themselves. Uh, but uh, Honorine, Fanny's mother, comes back sooner than expected, uh, captures them. Uh, even they, they didn't even know that they'd been seen. I think they, you know, presumably are asleep when when uh, Honorine peeks into their bedroom and sees what's gone on. And then we learn early on in the next film that uh, Fanny is pregnant. Uh, Marius is already Marius gone. Is gone. Yeah. He's gone, and and he's not they even writing. Even heard from him. Right, yeah. right. He he wrote maybe one letter to his dad. Uh, just to sort of explain, because you know, again, he never said goodbye to his father. He he literally disappeared in a moment, and uh, you know, he knows he's got some explaining to do. But boy, how do you even write a letter that captures everything that needs to be said? And there's no communication with Funny. Uh, again, is it indifference? Is it coldness? Or is it just <laughs> I don't even know how to put pen to paper to express what I have to say? Uh, is he feeling regrets over his choice? Is he having the greatest time of his life and is just so busy having fun that he's not even thinking about the old folks back home. You know, it's, it's all this kind of mystery, this, this, uh, you know, gnawing, lingering doubt that's just hanging out there. But meanwhile, Fanny finds herself in a very difficult situation, especially again, in this very traditional society where having a child out of wedlock is just a complete disgrace. Uh, your, your life and is down ruined. on the docks, down on the docks. Right. And, and, yeah, and she's, well and and it's it's one of those you know kind of traditional societies where you're either the good girl or the slutty whore you know that there's no in between and she's obviously cast her lot even though she's not been promiscuous even though she's been you know relatively modest and 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 a, a good obedient daughter there was that moment and boom there's the consequence there's a baby on the way and then there's the whole delicacy of how do you <laughs> how do you let Panice know about this because all of a sudden who what he thought was this 
beautiful virginal bride that he could bring into his household and, and show her a good life. Well, now that's all been called into question, and yet Panisse shows himself to be a man of, of great compassion and, and even recognizes, as long as the secret is properly maintained, that uh, this could actually be an advantage. I mean, there's it's not explicitly stated, but there's even a question of his own uh, virility, his own ability to have a, a, a consummated sexual relationship with his very young wife. Uh, he sees a bit of a paunchy old man, and, and she's right there in the bloom of youth. Well, <laughs> you know, how does that, how's that going to go, right? And, and and that's another aspect of these films is they're, they're really incredibly frank. I mean, they're never, you know, vulgar or explicit in that sense, but they definitely talk about very mature ideas for films of the early 1930s. I mean, I, and this is, this is pre-code, so I guess you could say Hollywood was kind of going into some of this territory at that very time, but, uh, there's definitely a frankness to these movies that uh, is is pretty pretty exceptional and, and pretty remarkable uh, as you're just sort of recognizing the you know the um, the mature adult nature of the of the situations <laughs> that are being sorted through here. Well, just on that in, in the last film when Cesario comes home again after his nine day venture, which we'll get into. And Fanny's first things are, you're going straight to the doctor and we're burning all of your clothes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we're going to run you through the, the circuit of We tests, know what you've you been know. doing while you've wandered around the shore. <laughs> yeah, which again is a huge assumption, which is not, does not bear itself in reality. I mean, there's no explicit mention that he went to whorehouses or anything like that, but that's not what the purpose of his visit was, even though that's what Mother exactly is thinking he was up to. Right? <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, and, and the way that the, all of that develops again in Funny, it, I'll tell you, these movies are a little over two hours, each of them, the last one being the longest, and they really just don't ever feel that way. Uh, the scenes are are relatively long, especially by today's standards. Uh, even though our movies today are infinitely longer, it seems, but um, uh, they they really clip along because there's so much going on with these characters in their in their heads. Um, you know, when she has that conversation with Panisse after she's found out that she's pregnant, she she's very honest with him. She never leads him on. Um, she doesn't expect him to want her. Uh, but there is just a lot that go. You know, they. Pagnol doesn't just write these characters to the conclusion and tell us this is where they're at now. He helps us see how they themselves get from point A to point B in their conversations with one another, with their dialogue. Uh, you know, we can see them struggling with these with these thoughts. We can see them trying to make sense of them while the other person is talking. And we can see them make their way there in beautiful writing, in natural writing. The, the films are very... Um, they just feel alive to me, very fresh uh, all the time. But it, it can make for some longer scenes, but they just never feel that way. They're they're thrilling. There's so much going on. Um, there's just a lot, just a lot of a crackle, <laughs> even yeah, in, yeah. even in the simplest of them. Um, and then you've got in in funny some more. I guess you know I'll use the word cinematic scenes. Like when Fanny finds out that she is pregnant and then goes to the cathedral, but we see her walk um, in various shots across the streets in of Marseille to make her way up to that cathedral, um, and and try to think, what am I going to do? And I don't know. It it doesn't maybe sink in as much today. Um, 
but this really could be for for her and you you you've talked about this uh, the beginning of a very tragic life, not just for her, but for her family. If she is going to become known as the Doc Whore, then that affects everybody who's down there and with her. Um, you know, as much as they might not want it to, it affects her mom's um, fishmongering business. It affects uh, everything. It'll affect the child. And for Panisse to, to come through, again, not as a vulture, or as a cad, or someone trying just to lustily get out there, or even as someone patronizingly thinking, well, I am the man who can save you. You should have, you should have taken me back, you know, you know, a month or two ago. He doesn't ever do that. Um, no, you know, he never lords it over her. Loving, yeah. Right, right. It's very much a, hey, I'm here for you. And, and, and when she starts to think, no, I can't make you make that sacrifice. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, it's no sacrifice. This is what I want. You know, this is what I, this is good for me um, and for my own joy in life. Some of the, some of my deep down dreams. And I love how that's represented in this film with the fact that above his ship, uh, his sail store, it just says honore, but it's offset. It's not centered. And he says, right. I've left that room to put up. And here he goes and takes out the letters, the words and son. And that's just such a nice representation of no, this is this is something that's beautiful to me too. Not just selfish, not greedy, not that makes me feel um, you know like a martyr or like your savior. But I feel blessed because of this opportunity too, and I just love how that comes across. I I don't think I even wanting to do that with a story that I would succeed in making that come across as well as this one does. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, there's kind of this resilience. We're going to make the best of a you know unfortunate situation, uh, and and actively reject the idea of becoming harsh and judgmental and punitive and and scornful, because according to the code of the times and of that society, he could have just absolutely trashed uh, Fanny and and you know. Uh, blurted this out and and of course this is a community that sort of thrives in its own way on gossip and you know backbiting uh if you want to go there but there there's a warmth and there's a there's a compassion that's being exercised here where he says you know this maybe isn't how any of us would have written the script but let's let's go ahead and make the best of it that we can and so again there's a there's a warmth and a humanism here that i think peniel is advocating for but it's it's in a very subtle way it's it's not again he's not even going after the more uh chiding moralists out there that that might view the circumstances differently uh, but he's also acknowledging that you've got to walk this very fine line because if this information becomes too public too soon, well, you know how they're going to respond to it. And so there's this very delicate matter of managing this information about whose child this really is. And then there's also the kind of the, uh, you know, the, the t- suspense of, with, is this going to be a boy or is this going to be a girl? <laughs> you know, <kind> <laughs> and so, and so Paniola is really doing some pretty impressive stuff just in terms of uh, providing some social critique and commentary about uh, people's expectations, 
about the ideals of uh, what's virtuous and moral and, and proper uh, versus the realities of, of how people live their lives and the things that happen to us along the way. So, um, you know, again, Fanny is not just a, a little coquette. She's not just this, uh, you know, good girl gone bad. She's a, a woman who comes into her own um, having had to make some fundamental choices, uh, perhaps has compromised in some ways and has some regrets. Uh, she has profound regrets. I mean, uh, she becomes the, the, the respectable wife of a shopkeeper, but at the cost of giving up her true love and of having to live a life that's a bit of a, a charade, you know, and, and that's, that's even though she's got the comforts and the privileges that, that come with her station in life, uh, there's a there's an underlying insecurity in a sense that it's it's not the real her, you know, living the life that she wished she could. And again, how many of us can maybe relate in different ways to you know what you've sort of had to settle for or what uh, your dreams were as a young person and and how things turned out? I mean, you know, finding herself pregnant. Uh, outside of wedlock is kind of like the worst case scenario, probably something you can imagine she and her mother had endless conversations about as she was growing up and it happened, you know, and, and, and there it is. Um, Mm -hmm. and yet it, it, you know, it was just, it was a a result of a, of a night of love with the man that she genuinely loves. And, And there's a child that they, that they had. And yet, the father's out of the picture and had no hand in bringing this boy up. So does he really have the right to call himself the father? I mean, it just goes on and on and on as you sort of, you know, dissect all the complications that come out of this, out of this dilemma, which is both, you know, artfully constructed and just so true to life in so many ways. Well, and let's bring back in Caesar and Marius. We've been talking about Fanny (laughs) and Panis throughout this and very rightfully so. Uh, but they're still there, and they have their own, um, you know, stories to be told, and 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 it affects their relationship to each other, not just their relationship with Fanny and with this child. Uh, but Cesar, he 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 sees what's going on and and becomes supportive of the idea that um, that Fanny marry Panice. Of course, he's against it at first. This is his his grandson, you know, and and to be to have that kind of stripped away from him, and from Marius, you know, he he kind of uh, his first reaction is Panice, no, you can't do this, Marius. They're engaged, they're married, they just haven't gone to the to the to get it official. Yeah, you know, give us some time, you know, he'll be back <laughs> in five years. But, <laughs> but who knows where Marius is and when he's going to come home and what his thoughts are going to be. And so Cesar eventually works his way around to, hey, I'll be the godfather. Let's call the ch- the child because he'll have the last name Panis, Cesario, uh, Marius. You know they're going to name him after his his heritage, but he will be um, part of this. And in that way, for Marius, who does return, even his father has kind of um, got another son now you know, has, has a substitute for the one that, that went away. And, and it's this, this child and now, and now his wife, you know, not his wife, but his, that the woman that he was going to marry, um, he didn't know, he thought she was going to marry Panis and sure enough, that's what happens and all of that. But turns out she has his child and that's kind of taken away from him. And that's, that's where this film goes at the end. 
is that massive conflict. And for uh, up to now, you know, both of these end kind of in, 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 I don't know, not tragedy, but tragically, I guess, in, mm-hmm. in a way, especially for, for Marius, who, who has to, uh, to kind of, uh, he feels banished and, and left behind and all of that. And that, that's how these two films end is, is with that all going on. It's not particularly happy, but you know, we are it, t- today. We we know there's another film, <laughs> <laughs> but right, I don't yeah. think they did at that time. I don't know when no. Pagnol wrote um, Cesar, but he wrote it specifically for the scene. And so for many years, uh, theater goers in particular, that's where the story ends. Um, and I, I'm curious as we get into Cesar, um, if you agree with some of the criticism that this feels tacked on now, like, oh, we've had a lot of success with these other two films. Let's write a third one and finish the story that never needed to be finished because it ends so great in Marius and Fanny. Um, I don't agree with that, but I, you know, but I am curious what your thoughts are. Is this just a, a something tacked, a, a nice, and it turns out feel good, um, you know, wrap-up story that takes place a couple decades later? Or do you feel like it is, um, yeah, of course it's part of the trilogy, but do you feel it's a little bit more natural and, and fitting? Uh, even though structurally it's quite different and it doesn't follow up right away, it, it, it shoots us right way into the future. Um, are you glad it, I assume you're glad it exists. But oh, do, sure, yeah. You know, do, you, do, you, <laughs> yeah. do you feel... Um, the pull of that criticism or do you reject it david no, no i i mean i i feel like um this is a cesar is a gen the film is a genuine work of art that exists because it 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 serves a a noble purpose I, i'll say it you know obviously if it had never been made if circumstances had taken Pagnol in a different direction if there wasn't even this kind of clamoring to say let's let's figure out where this story goes i mean if, if you talk about the before trilogy as a you know we've already mentioned that um uh-huh. that that is a, a film that apparently link later is contemplating a fourth installment now each of the before films kind of could have been the end of that project and and maybe at a certain point were intended to be the last one, you know, and there is a perfection, but it's, it's great that we have the trilogy because it just takes those characters through further stages of life. And sure, I'd welcome a fourth one, even though, you know, I wondered if I have to repackage the whole. (laughs) (laughs) Really messes up the the box there. (laughs) But, but, um, you know, as long as the, uh, as long as the, sequel or the sequel of the sequel is well executed and and you know i don't i don't feel cesar is a tack on or a pander in any sense if Mm -hmm. if it had ended with funny as its conclusion it probably would have fit more into that convention of you know tragic poetic realism of you know you know, isn't life unfair? You know, isn't isn't uh, what's the line from Tokyo Story? Isn't life disappointing? Yes, it is. You know, so so there is that. But I I feel even even um, funny sort of still has that hopeful note, even though it acknowledges the pain and the loss. I mean, Marius, even though he's pursued his dream. It's it's only come at a great price, you know, and, and yeah, so he's he's paid it and has started to recognize it, right? Uh, and even and, more than ever before, 
Yeah, and and um, yeah, he still has a a legitimate gripe. I mean, he still is the father, and yet he's got to figure out what he's going to do with himself. And so, Cesar is is it does provide that opportunity to tie up some loose ends, and it it does end on a a very uplifting note. And that is kind of the refreshing difference, if you if you will, to films like whatever pepe lamoco port of shadows you know those great jean gaban <laughs> films which yes. really do end I, in, in the bleakness there and I leave actually us kind thought, of what if marius yeah. had been cast but uh, what if jean gaban had been cast as marius you, you yeah. have to end it with his death i mean you, you got to kill him at the end of this somehow <laughs> but that's right yeah. not how this one goes <laughs> no no so i you know i feel like you know again just the the way that each of these characters you know lives and breathes in their portrayal in the in the dynamics of, of where they're going in life um no i i trust Pagnol's um genius at at kind of projecting the character arcs into the future i mean i you know maybe my biggest criticism and it's it's really more on a petty level is is that uh these young actors you know the the results are mixed and aging them 20 years you know <laughs> marius and fanny don't really look 20 years older than uh, and they're obviously what four years older you know and and they've also yeah. become successful actors in their own right uh, they do gray up uh raimu pretty well and penice definitely you know can give a convincing deathbed performance you know uh Charpin is the actor's name and and so those guys who are already a bit on the mature side already they they could you know again put the touch of gray in their hair and maybe you know wrinkle them up a little bit in the makeup um you know so so <laughs> the, the but you know it, it it seems pretty clear to me that Pagnol projected this 20 years old later so that the child can now be an adult, a young adult who's yeah. kind of come into Basically his own. Basically, the same age as Funny and Marius were. Right, and and he or. can he can be that foil to once he discovers the truth of his parentage. You know, he has his role as kind of a scold and 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 uh, you know uh, offering a rebuke to his his profligate parents and his mother. And I mean, there's some pretty excellent dramatic you know fireworks in in those passages when he his first it's first disclosed to him after his his presumable father uh, panis passes away uh without ever disclosing it he he doesn't have the courage to say son here's the story he, he wants to die uh knowing without any question that uh cesario regards him as his genuine father so he leaves it to his wife which Again, it's a bit of a chicken move, and and it's probably a little bit of a, a blight or a check mark on Panisa's character or ethical integrity. But I understand people are like that, you know. Well, and so he leaves and, it to the and, wife. And, Go ahead, yeah. And and really quickly on that, I I hundred percent agree with you there, but it I I think it underlines how meaningful this has been for Panisse. It, it oh, isn't absolutely, because absolutely, he right. is... I, I don't necessarily feel it's because he right. himself is being cowardly. It's because for him, having that son is one of the main things of his life. And at the end, he wants to keep that. And, and he has loved that son. And the son mm-hmm. has loved him. Sure. And so I, I do I do understand. And I think, again, that that shows that side of his character in a way that uh, would be hard to do just by him saying, oh, I love this son. Uh, somehow yeah. it comes off as as genuine, even though there is an act of cowardice mixed in there. 
it's it's a very difficult conversation to have as you're on the verge of exiting this world. I mean, come on, yeah. That how how much can you handle when your your health is failing, and there's so much to be said. And yeah, he just sort of sidesteps that responsibility. And so be it. So he leaves it to Fanny to to make that disclosure, and Cesario, uh, somewhat understandably, erupts because he recognizes he's been truly lied to his his whole life i mean that's a very significant thing you know to discover oh who i thought i was or where i thought i came from um is not exactly (laughs) what i was led to believe and and uh you know i discovered as a as a young man that i i was conceived out of wedlock my parents got married you know, after I was already in my mother's womb. And so that was a pretty shocking discovery for me as a, as a young person um, when it was kind of, and it was shared with me by a different relative. I never actually specifically discussed that with my own parents, you know? And so I, I could relate to that moment of like, oh, well, that's something. <laughs> now I yeah. never, you know, I never yelled at my mother and, and uh, we never went through that kind of a scene and, and, you know, things are what they are but I, I certainly that you know that was a clarifying moment for me of, of a way to make sort of a personal connection there and and certainly I've known other people in, in similar circumstances so uh, again life has a way of throwing curveballs when you least expected it and he's already mm-hmm. going through the process of grieving his father now he's discovering that the story that you know he was raised on was was kind of a uh deception and and what's a young guy supposed to do with all of that um so now he's got this new mission he's got to go out and find this guy he's heard about uh, cesar's runaway son and and uh you know his <laughs> godfather's no good you know uh, offspring and oh that's your dad by the way <laughs> you know it's like let me wow. jump in just really yeah. briefly before we get to that part of the, sure. the show I, I like Cesario. I, you don't know if you're Ginu when he first comes in all all gussied up, you know, and re- rather proud of, of who he is. And oh, yeah, you can tell he's a, he's a rich military. boy. Right. Yeah. And, of course, when he hears this news, he kind of at first goes after his mom. She must have uh, lied to Panisse and, you know, or she had an affair when they were married. You know, it takes him a while to f- understand the facts and to accept them and to accept that, no, I, I never did lie to Panisse, to your to your father. And we were in love. You know, there, mm-hmm. it takes him a while to, to work his way out. But I, I like where he, I don't know, I, I like where they bring him. They make him... Well, I don't want to say they make him. He's actually a very sympathetic character in his own right, who oh, yeah. Yeah. who has to go through some some kind of shocking stuff that is understandable. I mean, this is an existential question in a way, <laughs> you know. Right, right. Who I... you thought you were, as you said, you you are not. And even though, um, you know, in many ways it, it was true, it's also a bit of an illusion, a bit of a facade. Um, and you were unaware yourself, and now he's got to he's got to work through that stuff. And I, I like how they get him there. I like the conflict between him and his mother, um, and who who's going through her own struggles because, as she admits herself, she's kind of never wanting Panis to die. Has always realized he's a lot older than her, and if the good Lord does his job right, she will live thirty years after him. 
free. She's she is undergoing both the guilt of feeling that way throughout her life when Panis is dead. Uh, I I do think that she respected and loved him, but interestingly, the people who were really shown at the funeral and who are, are mourning him afterwards by that empty chair, which I think is such a poignant um, mm-hmm. part of the film, mm-hmm. are his friends. You know, it's not her. It's it's his friends. Uh, Cesar right. and and uh, and and Brown and Escartafig and you know all those guys, the doctors there, uh, they're the ones who are really struggling. That Penice, this person who they've known all their lives and who's been a part of them, is gone now, and they're they you know it's it's a mourning, but also a uh, this is where we are too, guys. We're kind of getting close to that line. Um, yeah, who's and, next? You know, kind of asking yeah. those types of questions, right? Yep. So there's so much going on, even, you know, while the main story of how can we reconcile uh, Cesario and his father and and his mother, his real father, how do we bring Marius back into the picture in a way that 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 works and i again i i just think the film works i think that that Pagnol pulls it off it doesn't feel uh, manipulated um it feels it feels natural and that's one of the reasons why i think the film is is it is a good thematic continuation of what we have in the first two and doesn't feel tacked on it doesn't feel like oh well dang you know we just found out our season was canceled. Let's make sure that we tie up all the loose ends and get our lovers together, and you know, we'll do it in the. We'll just tell them that that's what's happening. We'll 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 re- relieve everybody of their struggles. Um, no, yeah. it it works through it, and it works through it because of what's gone on before. We we have Marius struggling. That this is the woman I love, and I've always loved her, but. She's different now, not in a bad way, but in a way that I don't fit in her life anymore. She is a lady. She has money. Um, she right. has expectations. And that's not something that I can do anymore. And we've got to be able to work through that. We have Cesar, who uh, really did raise, uh, be part of raising another son while his, his real son was gone for uh, you know a generation. And how do we help these people... Now, on the new horizon that they have in front of them, the whatever years they have remaining, uh, how do we help them? How do we see them uh, maybe come together and and uh, and in spite of the choices that were made in the past, you know, get some reconciliation? And I just I think it works wonderfully. I I think so. Again, you, you, there's just so many dimensions to explore here. Um, you know, once Marius recognizes the circumstances of who his son is towards the end of the film. Uh, who Fanny has become now it's like well does he slide his way back into her life now that she's got this fortune that she's inherited and he can sort of coast off of that money where's his own pride and self-respect he recognizes he's made some very questionable choices he's not living the exotic life of a sailor he's working as a mechanic in a you know kind of a low rent garage and and you know and, and even though he's got his own little thing going on he knows there's this huge chunk of his identity, his life, his his heritage, his culture, uh, his people, or just in the next town over. He just, you know, does he have mm-hmm. the gumption to go back and reconcile and own up to his own failures and process through the own 
anger and frustration that his wounded pride is feeling towards these people. Again, you, you and, love and them, but gratitude. you yell. Well, right, there's gratitude. I mean, his boy has been brought up well. He's He's got to feel a certain <laughs> sense of pride at, at how this all turned out. And uh, and, the, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, David. Well, just from a sort of from an observer, it's like, oh, you're my son. Wow, what a fine young man you are, and yet I can't take any credit for that other than the genetics of it, you know. Well, and maybe even to wonder when he tell when he tells the you know his partners the the other folks at the garage that when he finds out Panis has died. Mm-hmm. And and you you learn that Panice has guaranteed some of the loans that that he used in order to make his establishment. Uh, he never had to rely on the guarantee. He didn't know that Panice had made the guarantee, but he has to recognize. But for Panice's guarantee, he never would have been able to get where he is either. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sense of 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 humility, but also I'm sure of some humiliation. Um, that he's he's struggling with, and there's a tenderness to it. I, I did like how they 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 land on the side of tenderness. He feels toward Panis rather than any bitterness, um, despite all that has gone on. Um, he's he, there's it could have gone either way, you know. Uh, but he he does feel some tenderness and some gratitude, and probably that's a, the way he got there was by accepting that I'm not so special. Thank goodness there are people who have been special who have taken care of me and of my responsibilities. And I, again, there's <laughs> there's so much that we could really dig into about these characters and about how they they kind of get to these places that I, yeah, I, I, I could ramble on for a long <laughs> well, time sure. because it's well, just rich. There, yeah, right. You're right. There's depth. There's texture. There's you know nuance and subtlety. All those things that make these films very rewatchable. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the. Yeah, it's fairly comic. Uh, the whole um, episode of Cesario's <laughs> little uh, you know adventure and, and his excuse where he's going to go see a friend while he's really out there <laughs> doing his with research. The stoker. Then, yeah, with the stoker and the stoker's calling back, giving updates of what what to Cesario is going on, and and of course the friend that he's visiting just happens to drop by the actual household to visit on him, and 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 so it's just it it, it again it's just another nice example of how uh, you know humor and pathos uh, and and just you know the kind of the the amusing aspects of life are are portrayed so so delightfully here you know you 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 could you could play this a lot more straight a lot more dramatic you know uh, even even ramp up you know the tension but there's just there's just this warmth to it all that i i just really find uh, so delightful and 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 so yeah i've i've actually watched each of these films twice over the past couple of weeks uh with with great enthusiasm on the rewatch you know partly it's just to you know make sure i'm pretty sufficiently versed so that i can podcast somewhat intelligently about these films but i just <laughs> really enjoy hanging out with these characters and mm-hmm. and just experiencing this little slice of life from a, a place that's very appealing uh and and rings true and uh, and I and I do and 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 yeah, as we were, you know, as Julie and I were watching the first time through, towards the end of Cesar, I'm like, oh, please let them get together. <laughs> you know, you're really you're really hanging because you feel like there's stakes here, and and uh-huh. you know, if you know French films from the 1930s, right. there are no guarantees <laughs> of where this is going to end up, right? Yeah, it really could go any way, and 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 very sharply and harshly. I mean, we could have ended these with like Fanny's suicide, or oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. you know, and, 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 Cesar. You know, you, 
killing his father accidentally. Or, right, right. Some know. kind of a barroom brawl where, you know, an edible type of a thing going on. And, and yeah, you mentioned Fanny's, um, you know, contemplation of suicide. I mean, part of the drama of that walk down the docks of Marseille is, is she going to jump into the river and just be done with it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt that there too. I, I mean, I didn't expect that that would happen because there's a whole nother movie and a half to go right <laughs> but but you know it it felt to me like that's that's kind of what's on her mind that's that's a a right turn she could take to to just get in the water and uh yeah and and boy yeah. you know at that moment her future is is a it has been i don't know it's it's made been rendered blank in in a shocking sudden you know a blighting kind of way and it it looks like oblivion as much as it looks like a future kind of like the docks of new york that we talked about in our first episode mm-hmm. where there's a young woman ready to end it all so you know those, those kind of uh dilemmas did drive women into those desperate types of decisions uh but i am you know i guess if we want to get into ultimate spoilers uh, the final ending of the trilogy i'm really happy that it it went the way it did i think Again, you know, the movie is titled Cesar, and even though a lot of the dramatic action revolves around Marius and Fanny and Cesario, Cesar himself is kind of like the the overlord of this whole saga, mm-hmm. and I think it's very fitting that that's the final, uh, the end of the name of the final film, and that he kind of plays that kind of uh, blessing and and gatekeeper role at the very end, saying. Come on, y'all! You know what to do, <laughs> and and it's it is it's a really it's a really marvelous moment. <laughs> I mean, it, it it ends this whole journey on such a, a, a uh, an uplift. And let's face it, you know, Marius and Fanny are going to have their struggles as a couple. Oh yeah, um, you know, whether they're going to be money. yelling at each other when they get back to the to, to the docks. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just how it goes, and and he's going to have all of his insecurities about you know her wealth and his foolishness and yet he's still the man of the house he's gonna he's gonna bring all those old patriarchal ways that uh, maybe he thought he was leaving behind when he jumped on that ship and ventured off into new unexplored territory and and uh, the open seas uh he's still a provencal he's still a marseillaise he's still kind of picked up all those you know those ideas and all those expectations of how things are supposed to be and Fanny, who's been married for you know the better part of her life to a, an older man who's treated her with a certain kind of decorum and and sensitivity and and even a you know put her up on a bit of a pedestal. Well, now she's going to be with a much more of a, a gruff man her own age, uh, both uh, her heart's desire and yet you know does she know what she's really in for? So you know yeah. you can you can think ahead speculatively uh, which is another uh, hallmark of a, of a great saga is that these characters kind of take on a life of their own beyond the parameters of the novel or film or opera or whatever else you might be thinking of them or where you first got to know them and so to me yeah that's that's where this film uh i mean i i think if i had to rank them i'd probably put marius and funny just a little bit above cesar just because i think um you know, I talked a little bit about some of the shortcuts and some of the, you know, not implausibility, but you know, there are there are things about those first two films that just struck me as completely masterful. But I think Cesar is an incredibly uh, worthy and totally appropriate conclusion to the whole thing. Yeah, 
just to revisit kind of what you're going through with their struggles and who Marius is, I, one of the things that, as you were talking about that, that kind of struck me is even when these characters are fighting and you see Marius start to crack a smile at, very, at the very beginning of the, of the trilogy, there's hope in all of that, that this, this dispute is a little bit surface bound. They are listening to one another. They, they're going to get to know what the others are struggling with and they're going to disagree and all of that. But the, the warmth that comes in in that smile is the realization that they can rely on one another and they will get through it. Yeah, and I do think the films end that way, and I I think Cesario adds to that too. The the scene where he tells Marius who he is, you is know, Marius it? is happy to see him. They've they've kind of gotten a, a, to know each other um, over that nine day stint, right? And Marius really likes him, and so he's happy to see him again. Oh, it's good to see you, you know, and that's genuine. And when he when Cesario tells him who it is. You can see that Cesario has made he's made peace himself with the facts, but he might be a little bit worried about how his father will now. Mm-hmm. And when he kind of starts to say, "Yeah, I, I'm I am from around here. I'm I'm Panisa's son. I'm Fanny's yeah. son. I'm I'm I'm." I'm, I'm your son. Yeah. And Marius is like, excuse me? What did you say? <laughs> yeah, that's great. And then Marius grabs his arm and walks with mm-hmm, him. There, mm-hmm. There is that sense that, hey, yes, they're going to struggle. But deep under it all, the way that they're able to get through all of their, you know, conflicts and be blustery and all that is that they they have that bedrock um, that be, beneath it all is, is there for them. And I'm not trying to say these films are moralistic in that way or that the characters are perfect in that way i think the films just naturally show that that's who these people are they 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 have developed these relationships and yes they've they've floundered you know they had a Mm -hmm. 20-year breach but we know and they're learning throughout it all that they are there for one another and will always be there for one another. And so I, I love how the, the films and the trilogy ends. Um, yeah, yeah, probably even more now as we've talked about it than I even <laughs> did before. So. Sure. Well, it, it, it's an affir- it's affirmative, I think, is, is kind of the word that comes to my mind. Is that he's not tacking on a sappy, you know, love conquers all type of happy ending just for, you know, crowd pleasing purposes. Um, this seems this seems to come from a place of genuine conviction that you know despite yeah. the terrible mistakes and stupid decisions and unintended accidental consequences of our actions um you know life's not over till it's over and there is a yeah. there is a hope for reconciliation for patching things up um uh, without denying the the you know the ugliness and the sadness that we've had to go through yeah. Um, there's still a, a a path forward, and and I I really love that. I hope. really feel like that's a yeah hope. hopefulness exactly. Hope. That's <laughs> and I think it, I think the hope rings true because it doesn't feel inevitable. That this is not the ending that had to be just because again it felt it, it was directed that way. It it doesn't feel inevitable. There are so many ways this all could have gone wrong. It's hopeful because the characters are hopeful and and they did some work to get there. Um, and hope you know you never know how things are going to turn out that's what hope is for and and that's how these feel they don't they don't feel inevitable again like you say who knows what's going to happen over the next 20 years for these characters is 
for one, Cesario is about to leave again. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's been called yeah. up. Um, it, the story goes on, and, and Cesar is not going to be there forever. And um, but the the hopefulness of it is 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 a beautiful thing. Yeah, I think I think that's a pretty good point to say. You know, that's yeah. that's our film discussion. Maybe we can get into some of the other features. I mean, we've already touched on some of the supplements and all of that. Um, we've we've had a really satisfying journey with these characters, and um, they are they are uh, films that I I believe will be worthy of popping in down the road, just because it's such a um, so, such a, a an invigorating journey that that you go on. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, highest That's recommendation good. and and probably other angles of insight and and um, you know analysis that are available. Uh, you know, there, there's just so much. You know, as you've already said, there's so much depth and and substance that uh, Paniel just seems like a very wise observer of human nature, and uh, and also I think you know the the, the particular culture. Uh, you know, I don't I don't speak French, and and so one French soundtrack is going to kind of sound the same. Although you can uh, one experiment I might try is even watching sections of this film without subtitles you know because mm-hmm. the expressiveness that just comes through the tone of voice uh <laughs> without the distraction of having to read what's at the bottom of the screen might be a, a fun way to re-experience these these films now that you you know know kind of what what all is happening and and even if you might miss some of the you know wordplay and these are these are again are very talky type of films but that was Pagnol's genius was uh, not just constructing a very dynamic plot but but really putting very evocative dialogue you know the french speakers who might be listening might just you know discern the difference between the marseillaise and the you know the parisian accents and all of that that was a big piece of the casting and and uh pierre fresnay who played marius was not marseillaise himself but he spent what a couple of weeks working bar <laughs> in a dock dockside uh, you know establishment much like the one that his character worked in, and came back ready to go and and was very convincing to Pagnol and the others, which you figure they're not going to mince words or compromise if you're not able to cut it. And so you know, Pierre Fresnay he he went on to have a pretty substantial career himself. He's in some uh, excellent Criterion films of this era. Uh, Le Corbeau comes to mind in particular, mm-hmm. uh, a Clouseau film. So, uh, you know, a lot to a lot to appreciate just on the performance level too. I mean, the uh, you know the the, the technical skill um, of of the different actors, um, you know, pretty impressive, pretty commendable. Yeah, I, I agree, and 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 I th- I I've, I actually have done that where I've turned off the subtitles. I understand French a little bit for. Uh, you know, uh, because I, I know some other languages that are surrounded a little bit and I've taken French classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the subtitles are, are not the, 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 the main way that you'd learn what's going on. It's through th- their energy. I mean, Raimu's, <laughs> that man <laughs> Such can, a boisterous can speak guy. A, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's like, um, lost in translation where you hear him say, you know, go on for a minute. And the, the subtitle is, you know, five words or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Get it, out it, of here. Very, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he is going off and you, you get a lot of that. You don't have to know exactly the words he's saying to know that, uh, what's going on in that energy. Uh, but definitely brought to mind, and I can't remember what film it's on this, the supplement that came out a few years ago on subtitling, 
that showed, hey, if we translate every single word, look at what the subtitle is going to look like. And it's like all over the whole screen. Was um, it Panique? I think it was Panique. Panique. I was, yeah. I, I was just trying to look it up and I, I got to Le Poisson and I was like, well, that's <laughs> yeah. not it. And then I thought, well, maybe it was on the other Pagnol. So I looked at the baker's wife and I was like, that's not it. So yeah, I think you're right. Panique's uh, got a great supplement on how they do subtitling for some of these very talky uh, films. Um, and but it's wonderful how much of that can still come across just because of the the wonderful performances by all of them that we we know a lot that's being said and going on just because of how <laughs> the energy and uh, or the tenderness um or the sadness or whatever it is at the moment uh, so yeah I, I definitely definitely and and there's some good supplements about the um well the, the, some of the actors uh talking about the films unfortunately Remu uh passed away about a decade later, so did the um, so did Charpan, the guy who played uh, mm-hmm. Panisse. They both died fairly shortly, you know, after all of this. In the forties, I believe, right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, but we've got um, we we've got supplements with a few of the other actors uh, looking back on it, and and also realizing from other supplements that the Marseille trilogy has taken on a life of its own. It is not just this. I mean, clearly it started as a, as a stage production and it's continued as such, but I was blown away by how many um, adaptations there have been. Yeah, uh, Both in English, but also still in French, including one that, that just came out over the last decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Yeah, I, I wish I had a little bit more time and I think I, I will try to pursue i think there was a 19 early 1960s version called fanny which or fanny probably in english which kind of condensed several of these films into one uh which i think could be done i think you could definitely you know shorten it up and and kind of work through the major plot developments and hopefully they're good movies but you're right these characters have become kind of cultural touch points for a lot of people in particular in France but I think that's another kind of benefit of this of this comprehensive box set you you recognize the film's classic status which you know doesn't mean it's just automatically canonical so now you automatically must uh, uh, like it but but you recognize these films which you know I think you and I can both say we both enjoyed quite a bit you have a respect and a sense of their stature um, among the you know the francophone peoples uh, uh, as as stories as characters as archetypes and I think that is that is very worth mm-hmm. uh, getting in touch with because uh, these are the types of stories and types of characters that kind of shape a culture and, and kind of give people reference points uh, both for the humor you know, again the, you know, the the table talk and the card game and some of the you know those highlight moments but also just how do we respond when we find ourselves in life dealing with circumstances maybe one or two shades removed from the kind of dilemmas that these uh, beloved characters are dealing with so what what are some of your favorite uh, supplements or what the ones that really helped uh, enrich the experience for you uh, in the box well, I think I think that uh, documentary series from the seventies, uh, Marcel Pagnol, Marceau Choisy. Um, basically, these are kind of in depth, sort of telling the story of how these films came together. This is like an excerpt. I think that was like a six hour documentary series that kind of looked at Pagnol's entire career, and so mm-hmm. they excerpted the. The the, the the episode sections that were specifically about this trilogy. Uh, that was just super informative. I really enjoyed that. Uh, I also completely loved the little, I don't know, was it 10, 15 minute 
segment a compilation of it's just called Marseille by yes, it, yep. it's by, by Pagnol himself. Yeah, it's basically it almost felt like maybe outtakes of of location shots that they couldn't use or decided not to use in the main trilogy. But my goodness, what a nice little travelogue that is, you know? Um, it's yes. very impressionistic, yes. and you basically just want to plop into 1930s Marseille. Here's 10 or 15 minute uh, in mini vacation. Go for it. You know? Well, and it reminded me that so many of the, well, uh, I can't, can't remember. I'm trying to find it as, as I'm, you know, not talking too clearly. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a lot of those old, like early, early, early films where they just kind of go down a street and they're yeah. haunting and beautiful and lively. And I'm trying to remember, there's one that I just adore from I think it's the 1910s or the 1920s, um, and I'm trying to find it on Letterboxd, but I've got too many films logged from around there. I'm not going to be able to, but it's just them walking down a street and you see people responding to the cameras. I mean, these things are so important. I love oh, that we absolutely. get some of this yeah. stuff in like the um, the Buster Keaton release and and the Harold Lloyd releases where they go, hey, let's you you saw a lot of these streets in L.A. We're going to show you some pictures and really help you get to see what L.A. was like in the 20s and all of that. Yeah. And I think this does a good job with Marseille. I mean, clearly it's not uh, in you know in super depth. It's not like I know Marseille now. Um, but I love getting away from this invented world of the Dock of Marseille to to seeing some of these streets that he's trying to um, evoke. And that I love that. It's just a very short documentary that he... It says it's 1935, so just before Cesar was, you know, as Cesar was being worked on and things like that. So, yeah, I love that too. Definitely recommended. That's on Filmstruck or Filmstruck. Sorry, that <laughs> is on the Criterion Channel yeah. um, as well, so you can watch it there. Um, uh, I also like the essays. I think uh, Pagnol's little um, mm-hmm. recollection of of the making of uh, in writing in, in print there is, is pretty good. Uh, I love the little story about uh, how he had not yet conceived of the ending of Cesar until he met that nice little 90-year-old woman who uh, made a bargain. You tell me the end of the story, and I'll let you use all of my antique furniture. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so almost on the spur of the moment, he kind of wrapped it up and uh yeah in a sense maybe gave her the ending she was hoping for but i think it was a moment of inspiration if you will and uh i just love those kind of anecdotes of of sort of uh great art in the making and and how how these decisions are 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 made uh that end up uh, providing such marvelous uh entertainment and food for thought yeah, and I guess to kind of maybe round it out, again, there's there's a few of those um, interviews, uh, including one with Nicolas Pagnol, his grandson. And then there is the um, introduction that I brought up earlier uh, by Tavernier. And then uh, one that I, the, these things that I always like is, you know, a little bit of a scholarly look. There's a Brett about bowls. Um, video essay, Pagnol's Poetic Realism, that I think runs about a half an hour. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that, too. That's that's where a lot of the stuff about how these have a life of their own um, kind of uh, was, was hit home to me. I didn't hadn't realized a lot of that yet. 
Yeah, and there's also a nice little restoration demo. Mm-hmm. Those are always fun. Oh, I love those uh, too. And, yeah, <laughs> and and you know, even when I was looking at some of the uh, user reviews on IMDb, um, people who love these films talked about, um, kind of lamented the fact that they had to walk it, watch it on some kind of low res DVD or even VHS. So I mean, again, these films have been known by many people for a very long time. But let's never take for granted or underestimate the value of what a top-notch restoration can do to to bring these old battered relics to a brand new life. I mean, Nicholas Pagnol, you know, he he makes it very clear his intention is not to just have this acknowledged masterpiece of the past. He he wants it to live and breathe and speak to future generations. And so, you know, in leading up the restoration effort, you know, he says, we want this, we want this negative to be viewed, this film to be viewed by, you know, people in the next century, because we feel like this story has, has merit and value. And I, I would agree. I think it's, it is absolutely delightful to know that these images from the earliest days of sound pictures, um, feel so vital and so immediate and present. Uh, to a viewer in 2021 now. All right. Well, I I agree. These these have meant a lot to me over the past few years, and it was it was delightful to dig back into them as the as the year flipped from 2020 to 2021. Yeah, uh, a, a well needed own... break from yes. uh, the the <laughs> the tumult of our own times. You know, we're recording on January 9th, and I guess we can just let listeners figure out where we're at the calendar and what was going on this week. <laughs> yeah, it's been. It's been something else for sure, um, yes, but I was was very much looking forward to this because I find these these uh, restorative and healing and and hopeful <laughs> these oh, conversations. Yeah, so absolutely. I appreciate and, your time and, again today, David. Well, it's always a pleasure, Trevor. It's, it's always great to have these uh, opportunities to just kind of clarify our our takes on these films. I mean, yeah, it's, it's great to watch them and to feel moved by them and to say, well. That was really good, <laughs> but it's it is very uh, refreshing and mm-hmm. and uh, uplifting for me to to have this kind of chat with you and and to share it with listeners who maybe are on a similar wavelength as we are in our regard for these great films. Well, and and we do have an idea of what we're doing next here in a few months, and yeah. I would also call these films that we're going to talk about next time um, very touching and tender. And ones that are are quite uh, will geez we'll have a lot to say about that side of them as well as their structural side, <laughs> as well sure. as the beauties of the box itself, oh, yeah. <laughs> because we'll we'll be we'll be talking at least the plan is right now about the the Coker trilogy. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. I mean, so. So we'll be jumping from 30s France to was it 80s 90s Iran? 80s 90s, so, yeah, yeah, and and again, I I love the kind of the globe trotting aspect of what we've been doing so far, just kind of jumping from you know one society and one era to another. And let's face it, the Coker trilogy is one of the most anticipated uh, box sets that Criterion's released in recent years, and uh, they really nailed it, knocked it out. So that's a little taste of uh, what we've got in store next. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, listeners, thanks. We'll we'll hopefully uh, be back very soon, and hopefully the the spring will be coming, and uh, we'll we'll have some really good uh, good news uh, between now and then uh, as we continue to work through these times of ours. And so, again, David, thank you so much. We'll we'll talk to you soon. Marius, here we are, 